Hello, my name is Bob Hurt, and welcome to the Baseball Doesn't Fall, Far From the Tree podcast. Our guest for today's episode is Ann Keen, the author of The Cloudbuster Nine, which was a Casey Award finalist for the best baseball book of the year. She was a graduate of the University of North Carolina. She also served as a speechwriter on Capitol Hill, and her work has appeared in the New York Times, Dallas Morning News, Raleigh News and Observer, and many other major newspapers. Her book doesn't just reveal the little-known story of this pre-flight school, but exposes our country's dedication and patriotism. I really think you're going to enjoy this podcast. And although I know the answer to some of the questions I'm going to ask you, uh, but since this conversation is for the benefit of those that will be listening to the podcast, I'm going to uh, still ask them. Uh, to start off, um, and, and I'm not sure I do know the answer of this, uh, were you much of a baseball fan before you wrote the book? I'll tell you, though, that, that baseball was always around our house. You know, obviously the book is about my dad, but it was either on the radio, television, news clippings. His hands were always stained from carrying around Sports Illustrated because he memorized scores and, and studied the athletes. And he talked about baseball nonstop. But my dad had two daughters, and so not really. I mean, we, we played a little bit of softball growing up. We were not very good at it. We have a great minor league team called the Crawdads in oh, my yeah. hometown of Green North Carolina. Oh, yeah, he loved – occasionally he went to those games, but, you know, by then we were gone, my sister and I, so he never really took us to games. Occasionally we might watch a, a high school game. Uh, but when I went to Carolina, my dad, whenever he visited, he would always go by the ballpark. And he loved the guys that he met, the friends that I knew from mainly the Northeast who played lacrosse and baseball. He always enjoyed getting to know those guys. So I think maybe I went to one game with him, but he did take me over to uh, Boshmer Park. And I did see his picture on the wall at the stadium, and I was kind of wowed by that. But <laughs> not, not terribly, not so much. I mean... The funny thing is, my, my poor father, again, he got these two girls, and it's sort of like the ghost of Jim and his love of baseball is very much alive. And just the other day, I was on Facebook, and there was a place called the Hickory Foundation Center, and if you're from there, you know what it is. It's where everybody was raised. It's where the pool was, the basketball court. Um, it's the kind of place where you got dropped off all day. Um, of course, they had a baseball field, but you'd have your fountain drink for a nickel. And, you know, Rick Barnes, the, the fabled basketball coach, uh, men's Tennessee uh, basketball coach, former UT coach, he grew up in Hickory, the foundation right. center. And, um, but again, they have a website. And the other day, they posted my dad's picture with a little league team. Oh, and nice. Again, yeah, I mean, he coached. He was always available to coach. But again, he had these two daughters, so I, I would say I wasn't a huge baseball fan growing up. I just, but it was always in the background of, of the family. So, so he didn't try to influence you guys, make you into baseball players. He let you be what you wanted to be, kind of. Well, I was actually a swimmer, and I still try to be one. I'm in okay. my 50s, and you got to do something. Huh? Um, oh, I read, yeah, I read I about that. I, I just read that, uh, I guess on one of the things I was looking when I was doing research, you still, you swim in like a master's level or something? Or? I do, I do. And I 
do it at University of Texas with Longhorn oh. Aquatics. It is fantastic. Nice. Whitney Hedgepath is our coach, and she's about my age, a little younger. Uh, but there are about 150 of us, and a lot of us, I, I, I'm not great at tennis, I'm not great at golf, but I can at least swim, I just know how. Yeah. But we have a huge team, and we're in you know, three or four days a week, and we actually get an opportunity to train at the campus pool, which is really great. But um, yeah, so I did that, and I write about swimming. Um, during COVID, two of my teammates were in terrible, terrible accidents, because the pool closed, and we had nowhere to go, and one friend, Philip, went hiking over at Barton Creek, and he fell 30 oh. feet. He's oh. now walking, but he was in a wheelchair for a year. And then Larry, uh, another friend, uh, got hit by a boat, and he's fine now. But, you know, again, we're just, we, we train together, and we really rely on swimming to keep us in good health. So, you know, that's something else I write about, just, you know, when you get older, the good that the water does for you. And, right. And, you know, again, I can't say enough good things about it. Yeah, I've always heard the benefits of uh, of that. In fact, uh, well, I played baseball in high school, but I had friends that oh, were on. Okay. We, yeah, yeah, I, I played actually uh, uh, a couple years afterwards. You know, I played uh, in a senior league, and then my uh, my wife sent me to a, um, well, I'm a big Pittsburgh Pirate fan, so sent me to uh, Pir Pirates Dream Week when I was, like, in my 30s. But... Um, yeah, uh, I had friends in high school that were swimmers and stuff, and they still keep, and my brother's a swimmer also, uh -huh. and, uh, you know, they keep up with, but I hear that swimming is so beneficial, I mean, as exercise and just, just everything, so I can, I think that's great that you're, you're doing that, because I've heard so much, you know, so many benefits about that, but, um, Thank you. yeah, now, um, okay, we established that you weren't a real big baseball fan. Um, like you said, the, the Hickory Crawdads were from where, where you grew up. But um, did you have a favorite Major League team, or, or do you have one now? Because now that you I do. I love the Red Sox. Oh. And, you know, I mean, I just, it's because I got so close to them. You right. know, exploring the life of Ted Williams and Johnny Pesky. Um, I love the people. I love Boston. Actually, my dream yeah. is to get a place up in Cape Cod. I don't think that's going to happen, but yeah. I love the beach up there. I like the, the sensibility of the people. My best talks have absolutely been in Boston. Right. Um, I did one up at Falmouth, and, and I mean, there were probably 80 people there, but they didn't really come for me. They came because they wanted to talk about the Red Sox. Um, Ted Williams' paper boy came, and he's probably in his wow. 80s now, and he, he had this plastic bag and he starts pulling out all this memorabilia and autographs but I, you know again i just love the spirit of the red sox well you know you know uh, new england itself i mean because my best friend was born in uh, new hampshire so i used to go up and spend summers up to you know with his aunts and uh, you know his grandfather and stuff and i mean they were diehard red sox fans i mean that whole red sox nation is is very strong i guess it's across the country people uh you know, are, are a part of that. But, um, you know, and, and Ted Williams, I know he's like, you know, any Red Sox fan that, that I talk to, I mean, you, you can't avoid not talking about Ted. Right. <laughs> he's going to get him and yeah. Yastrzemski, I think, uh, get in there. So. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Hey, did you ever did you ever read the book, um, I think Halbert Stein wrote it, called Teammates, about Ted? Ah. Absolutely, and loved it, loved it, loved it. Yes. And you know what? I met uh, David Pesky 
Okay. Johnny Pesky signed, and we had long discussions about that. And he just felt like that was one of the, the best books ever written about the game. But that is, when I was writing my book, I probably read that book ten times. And I underlined things that I saw that compelled me to go emotional, if right. you will. Like, it was about that bond. It was about yeah. the brotherhood. Of the players, and, and, you know, I actually interviewed Dr. Bobby Brown, third baseman from the Yankees. Oh, okay. And had a long discussion about that, just about the, the, the camaraderie of the old, the old leaguers, if you will, just that whole sense of loyalty, and that's what, to me, that, that book was about. Well, I mean, you felt like you were riding in the car. Remember when, uh, uh, yeah. Dwar and, Pe yeah, I mean, it was, I, I thought it was great. It's a, it was a great book. Um, okay, well, you graduated from the University of North Carolina, and you had a degree in, and you had a degree in journalism. What was the first job that you had getting out of there? I, I just out of curiosity, I. Oh gosh, no, it's funny. It was. Um, I thought I was going to be like Jane Polly, but I had stage fright. I just didn't know oh. it. Like, like, right? That's never going to happen. Right. And I got very lucky. I was picked up to be like a weather girl sort of show host in a tiny little station, Wilmington. Um, and it was it was a great, great first job. But it was the six a.m. show, and I was twenty two years old. I mean, and I had to do some crosstalk. You know, I had no life experience. But something about the camera turning on terrified me. Oh, okay. And it, it just—I am totally a behind-the-scenes person. I could look the part. Like if you put a camera on me, I look decent. Right. I could handle myself, but I was very, very uncomfortable. So that was sort of my first lesson of, you know, you have these notions of what you think you can do, and then you get in, and you're like, uh, I should not be in front of a camera. I need to be back in the control room somewhere. So that was really my, my first job out of school. Well, you, you, you got, uh, you know, watching the interviews that I've watched that you've given and stuff, I mean, you're apparently uh, you learned a lesson and you're very comfortable, it seems like. <laughs> and, you know, and, well, no, you look you look very natural doing it. So, you know, that must have been a good experience. Well, I think as you get older, though, like, I mean, my friends would laugh at me from college. They'd be like, what, what are you doing on television? I mean, really? I, you know, I was 22 years old. But now, in my 50s, uh, I mean, you know, I'm comfortable. And I can yeah. converse. I love the work that I do. And, you know, it, it comes much more naturally. But, again, that was just sort of was a great, great first job experience for me for, for a lot of reasons. Well, you know, it's it's funny. My my daughter, who is uh, twenty six now, she when she went to Rutgers, you know, she got a degree in meteorology, and and she was in the uh, they had a club where they gave the the uh, the college weather report. So it was, and that helped a lot. So you know, it's it's it, you know, being able to talk in front of people that you can see, like out in an audience, is different than talking to people on camera. Actually, I think talking on camera is, to me, seems to be more difficult. I mean, I don't know. What do you think? I'm not... Yeah, I love being in person, to be quite honest with right. you. I'm sort of fatigued with Zoom. I, I did it. But I love getting up, you know, in front of an audience. And what I really like about it is I get to tell a little bit of my story, and then I engage them. Right. See, my book 
is a very interactive book because right. the, the people that read it, you are my reader. A lot of men who served in the military are my readers. They want to stand up and tell their story. Right. And, and women, too, like wives to players, they're like, oh, my gosh, you know, I totally relate to this. So, you know, I treat it as an interactive experience. And so I just get up on the stage. I'll give my slideshow. I think people love slides. Yeah. They do not want to hear me read. I mean, if you want to put someone to sleep, start reading your book, and they're like, Susan on the front on the front row, but no, I mean I like to make it interactive, and I love to hear stories from other people, and I get emails all the time right. from readers, and they just want to share a story about their dad. A lot of the children of the players have reached out to me, and they're like, "Hey, my dad is on the cover of your book," and and it's fun because I'm able to shoot them an email back and say, "Hey, here's some articles about your dad. Have you seen these pictures?" So it's it's very much sort of an in the family interactive type experience well i saw i saw on facebook you posted some from uh wally moon's son was yes. it yeah that was great it was incredible like he reached out to me about a month ago and, and it just gnawed at me i said this is too good not to share yeah. and i wrote him and i said may i have permission and his his dad though he lived in t to be age 88 right. wally jr uh, is a coach. He was a game official. He owns part of a minor league team, I believe. And he's a high school uh, English teacher. And his note was about his dad and how he loved the game in the 50s and the 60s. And I think his father, Wally Moon, senior, went through spring training with my father. That was the oh, a lot of people did you know my poor dad he's the guy that didn't make it but Wally Moon did he played for 12 12 years with the Dodgers and the Cardinals but his son's note was about the old school you know going to the baseball games being able to talk to your neighbor without yeah. the lasers and the lights and you know when his dad earned six thousand dollars a year whereas he could have earned twelve hundred dollars a year as a teacher and he just wasn't really sure what he should do you know but it was about the pre the pre big money simplicity of the game and, and that's what people loved you know his dad was handsome he had a unibrow you know he was a handsome oh yeah i saw that I saw <laughs> <laughs> but super look kind of like rock hudson i mean a good looking yeah. guy these guys are all super good looking too in the 40s yeah. you know they're just charming and they're, they're rugged right. uh, but no i mean the, the response rate was pretty explosive and, and just and it wasn't my goal to do that but people they crave that they're sentimental i've had marines and and gentlemen in their 60s and 70s burst out to tears and they say our guys are gone you know yeah. and, and, and we love the players today but they yearn for that era of the old leaguer like wally Moon. right right no ab absolutely uh you know uh there was a book I read a while ago. Danny Perry wrote it. It was called "We Played, We Played the Game," I believe it was. It was interviews with different people, and it was people from like the fifties and sixties, and mm -hmm. just just them talking about the game. They played it for the right reason. They didn't play yeah. for it to have a suitcase full of money and stuff, or you know, right. you know, stock options, or you know, getting involved in that. I mean, they played. To get, you know, and and you talk to them now. They they love to talk about, you know, the game. I mean, it's uh, right. It's it's wonderful. I I really like talking to people like that. Um, and yeah. you know, it's funny you said about you know how the ball players looked rugged and and handsome. Oh, yeah. Now remember, you know, my buddy Wally Westlick that you spoke to. I don't know if you ever mm -hmm. saw pictures of him, but he was like that. He looked I like. Did. 
Yeah, yeah, he looked like a, uh, you know, chiseled kind of. His face was chiseled. Yeah. He had a lot of personality, physical personality came out of it. Um, but, yeah, he, I was very close to him. We used to talk every every month, so I miss him dearly, you know. It's been, I think, like, yeah, yeah it's been like two years. Uh, let's see. I have, okay, I have here that you... You know, you worked in Radio News, which we established, and you got, I guess you did some documentary uh, uh, research, but um, you also served as a press secretary and a speechwriter yeah. in Congress and also mm -hmm. a presidential administration. Now, that was George H.W. Bush, right, wasn't it? That's the son. It was George W. Oh, it was George. Uh, well, you knew yeah, H.W. Yeah, you knew H.W., though, right? I had a chance to, and he read my book. I mean, I, I actually believe he really may have read my book because right. I got a letter from, I, I think, Jim McGrath, maybe someone up from his staff, just saying, right. we appreciate this, and, and but he was in the book, obviously, mm. you know, and, and his son also wrote a, a really nice note of acknowledgement, didn't need to do that. I'm a big fan of the Bush family. I just okay. think that, you know, they, are, they have integrity. And I just looked to uh, Bush's service when he was 18 years old. Sure. He was in Chapel Hill. But yeah, I was actually in that administration, but I was an appointee, meaning I was a speechwriter for, for one of the smaller agencies. I see. So people tended to move around, but I wrote when I was there for, wrote on, you know, employment, fairness, labor, that kind of stuff. So right. I, was a, I was a minion, if we, you will. I was a, a small player, but I loved it. But I yeah. think my favorite job, and you had asked me about this without a doubt, was... Um, when I was in my twenties, I, I got, I became Ike Skelton's press secretary, and Ike was from Missouri. Okay. He was um, a yellow dog Democrat from Missouri, but he was chairman of Armed Services, a, a true gentleman. And um, when I was his press secretary, I learned a lot about the military, and I got to go on military trips. I did a carrier landing on the Enterprise. Um, I got to go to Fort Leonard Wood. I got to go to Whiteman Air Force Base and actually go down in a missile launcher. These were just, you know, research trips or I would go with him and he'd have to get me out of the room because I didn't have a clearance. And they'd be like, just take her over, just get her out of here, just drive her <laughs> around the base. But it was absolutely fascinating. And, and you know, I've got to, we christened a submarine, uh, nuclear powered dust. It was submarine, uh, the USS Jefferson City. So, okay. you know, I, what I'm saying is when I worked for Ike, it was during the Persian Gulf War. And so I, I got a close look at, at the military and how disciplined and devoted they are. Right. And so today, when we hear about this terrible news about the conflict with Russia and the Ukraine, I mean, this is what they stay awake for at night. I mean, this is their right. life. They right. are devoted to our country. They're patriots. They're here to protect us. But, you know, I, I felt like it was just a real privilege to, to get to see that um, up close and personal. Well, I mean, not many people get that opportunity. And, and you know, another thing I was thinking, you were saying about Missouri and stuff, any of the, mm -hmm. or Missouri, I think is what Missouri. I was, <laughs> Missouri. <laughs> Missouri. But I mean, uh, people from Missouri have this way of uh, speaking like, you know, you know, it's the uh, show me state. But you get, uh -huh. you, it's like nothing, like Dragnet were uh, nothing but the facts. I mean, it was... I, I I just uh, I enjoy talking to people from the Midwest. Uh, they don't pull punches, and they're you know straight straight shooters. I guess you would say like that. But um, yeah, with um, George uh, W. Bush, 
And you said you got a nice uh, note from him, but I mean, he... Yeah. Everything I've read, and I talked to a guy named Tom... I don't know if you know who Tom Grieve is. He was with the Rangers, uh, Texas Rangers, but he was the GM and he played for him. But he was the uh, general manager when uh, George W. used to be the owner. And he, he basically uh, reiterated a lot of what, uh, what you had said about about the Bush family because he got to meet, you know, H.W. and Barbara and, and, and George. I mean, George is a huge baseball fan. I mean, I know, you know, he, he owned, he was part owner of a team, but he really, truly loved, loved the game, which is, you know, for someone like me who's, a, you know, like a diehard fan, I mean, it's, you know, it's great to, to know that there's somebody uh, that's in, you know, the most powerful position in the world, you know, he was in that, that he has a love for the same pastime that I had a love for. So, right. that's, oh, that, yeah. you know, that, that opening pitch at the stadium after oh, 9-11, remember oh, that? Everyone oh, yeah. Chanting USA. I mean, yeah. that, was, that was bold. Love yeah. that. Well, you know, I'll tell you a quick story. I, and it was in the, uh, in the book. I have a chapter on Derek Jeter. And, uh, Derek Jeter, when uh, George W. was going out to throw that pitch, Jeter came out from shortstop and says, you know, you know how most people don't pitch from the rubber, you know, the, the pitching plate, they'll pitch in front? He goes, right. he says, you better pitch from the, uh, from the rubber, he says, or you're going to get booed. So, so he did, you know, George, George moved back. You know, he was kidding, of course. Oh, but, uh, interesting, yeah. George, George moved back and threw a perfect strike, if, if you remember mm -hmm. So, uh, oh, yeah. but yeah, that was, uh, yeah, like I said, he was just a baseball fan, you know, throughout, definitely a baseball fan, which was uh, very, you know, refreshing. Um, a question I want to um, ask you, did you ever consider writing a book before you discovered your, your father's treasures and, and about cloud, cloud busters or, you know, was that in the, in the scheme, your plans? I mean... Well, this is so funny. Um, I actually wrote an entire book. I uh, spent 10 years on it, and it's done. Um, and I kind of cut my teeth on it. After the Civil War, my family, uh, you, I'm not sure you've heard of this, but right. the Confederates, a lot of Confederates went to Brazil. The emperor wanted um, people who could grow crops and oh, build the railroads. I, I think I did. I think I might have. I'm yeah, a big Civil War fan. Exactly. Yeah. So they were called Confederados, and my family had two different branches that went down there. And it, uh, my great-grandmother was born in Brazil. Okay. Um, her name's Faye. Her name was Edith Schofield. And she was born, and uh, her mother died when she was two months old, and her father tried to raise her with her sister. And he wasn't able to do so, so he sent her back to the United States on a side wheel steamer when she was 10 years old. So from Brazil back to Mississippi. And she never saw her father again, but they wrote for 40 years. And so she ended up marrying and having my grandfather. And we knew a little bit about it, but I inherited a box of letters from the, the 40 years that they corresponded. And, you know, we never really knew what happened to Walter Schofield. We knew he remarried and he had 10 more children. He had this dynasty of, of you know, Southerners, descendants yeah. down in Brazil. So I ended up tracking the family down. I went there in 2007. Uh, my mom had fit when I did it. She mm -hmm. um, thought it was dangerous, but it wasn't. I mean, I, I did have to get a guide because my family lives 
It's like the equivalent of living on the tip of Maine. They lived in Caravellas. And so I went down, uh, got to know the family, lovely people, came back, wrote the book, and then, you know, very sadly, they do fly the rebel flag down there. And, you know, now the Brazilians see it slightly differently, but when that book was finished in 2015, it was a very bad time um, to come out with something like that. So that's done. I I mean, you know, do I publish that? I don't know. I think if there's a a valuable lesson there that people want to read about, of course, you know, but it's my family. It's it's our history. Right. so, but yeah, Edith, she died um, in Pineville, North Carolina in the 50s, but I have those letters. Um, I worked with National Geographic Books on a chapter about the Confederados, because it's one of those untold stories. So, you know, it's trickled out there, but that's the first book that I cut my teeth on. And that's, I, again, that's done. It's 300 pages. It's in a Tupperware bin. <laughs> I, I think you should do it. I think you should definitely have it published. I mean, uh, there's, uh, I would be interested in reading it. I mean, like I said, I'm a civil, you know, a civil war fan, but uh, I find the civil war fascinating because there are so many directions you can go with it. I mean, you can learn about it. It's not just about Grant and Lee or Sherman and Rosscram or you know any of those the generals and and things you know right. the stories like that. I mean, there's a lot of. I mean, right. there was there was the draft. I mean, the draft basically started with the Civil War and and just what you're saying now. I mean, there's there's a lot of that. That's why I think there's probably more books written on the Civil War than you know any other subject or right. Um, you know. But uh, yeah, I right. I definitely think, and with all the time and and work you put in it, I mean, I think you you have to get it published. <laughs> you know, you have to put it out there. But um, okay, um, after your dad passed away, and I know that the family asked you to to give the eulogy and write the obituary and everything. Um, well, you knew that baseball was a big part of his life, and you found the metal right. trunk. What, right. what can you tell us about that metal trunk? What was that like the first time that you saw it and you found out, you know, what was in it all those years? That must well, have been. Well, it was, yeah, I mean, the Hickory paper did a story on it, and you could see the trunk. I mean, it's just this metal 60s looking thing, nothing fancy. Um, but it was kind of bittersweet because, you know, I, I, I needed some evidence to, to write that eulogy because no one knew. I mean, we, we knew, but we didn't really know the facts about his career, and I couldn't butcher that, you know, in right. front of the whole town. I, I mean, I had to get that right. So I, I found, like, game programs. Uh, my mother, when they were first married, created a scrapbook for him, and all of the postcards were in it from spring training, from Panama, from... You know, all the, 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 the cities that he went to to play, you know, lots. So I could track his career from that. And it just, it gave me a whole new perspective on him because I saw him when he was young and he was healthy. And that dream was very much alive. I mean, he, he saw himself as becoming a major league player and he was playing, you know, in spring training, striking out Mickey Mantle with the bases loaded. Right. I mean, it, it really was real. And so I thought, ooh. He got pretty close here. And so, you know, I found that, and I found things from college. Um, he spoke at his, his college graduation, and there's a picture of him with Andy Griffith, who I guess was another speaker, who came to campus. But then there was the World War II scrapbook, and that's the thing that kind of blew me away because we had always heard that story about the bad boy. Well, 
Ted Williams wrote him a personal note with a picture. John Sane, uh, Harry Kraft. I mean, they all personally inscribed notes to him on their pictures. And so that was like, wow, looking back in time, I saw how real that was. And, and it's funny because his his college stuff and his, his years with the Durham Bulls, that was eclipsed by the World War II. I was like, whoa. This thing with World War II blows that away. And yeah. that's what got my attention. Well, you know, you know, Ann, I, of course, I looked, you know, I looked on baseball reference and at his stats and stuff. I mean, he was a, a really good pitcher. I mean, if it wasn't for that injury, I mean, he definitely would, you know, who knows how far he would have went and what he would have accomplished. Uh, that had to be tough for, you know, for him. I mean, for someone who loved the game and, and like, like you were saying, was so close and and uh, not be able to grab the brass ring, kind of, you know, that... Yeah, and you know what's interesting is about a couple of years ago, Gordon Eads, he was the historian over the, the, the Red Sox, great guy. Uh, I went and met with him, and he was looking at my dad's stats. And so he knew about Charlie Pesky, you know, being the, the mentor to him when he was a bat boy. And then my dad played for Johnny Pesky right. later, like, I believe it was like in the Texas League, and Gordon looks at me and goes, I hate to tell you this, but Johnny may have really over-pitched him, you know, like, yeah. it looks like he was pitching, pitching and pitching and pitching, and he goes, I think this might be where his arm blew out, he kind of mm -hmm. chuckled about it, you know, right. but he just looked right at it, and he knew, so, you know, I mean, that's, that's life, you know, yeah. he, he adored Johnny Pesky. Yeah. Well, you know, a lot of people, I've, I've done a lot of uh, reading on, you know, I'm, Johnny Pesky has uh, crossed over a lot of uh, research that I've done in baseball, and he coached a lot of minor league teams, and everybody uh -huh. that I ever personally spoke to or read about or listened to an interview has nothing but wonderful things to say about Johnny Pesky, yeah. and, and it seems like he left his mark on every single, every single one of the people that um that I spoke to that, you know, that uh -huh. he knew. So uh, that, that's great that, uh, you, you said your dad actually played for him and plus when he was a bat boy, because I know there was something, something I read, uh, read about there, um, either you said or somebody said that like Ted Williams and Johnny Pesky were essentially babysitters for your father because, you know, he was, yeah, yeah, which how cool is that? <laughs> it's like, you know. Well, yeah, I mean, it, all that was was during the war, and I've since heard this from many children of officers. My grandfather was one of the, the commanders of a base, right. and they had players to their house. I mean, I have pictures of it. You know, they'd have a cocktail party, which they did a lot, and they'd right. say, hey, you know, come on over. And my dad was his only child, and I, I guess they caroused. Uh, I, know, I know for a fact, you know, Ted Williams and Johnny Pesky took him to the movies. Wow. And he would tell these stories, you know, as an adult, and, and then now I have perspective on it. But again, a lot of the other officers, like uh, Tom Hamilton um, and his brother Howard Hamilton, I believe, they would have the players over to the house, and they were just stars for the children. So, you know, it was a small base. Chapel Hill is a village. Right. And these people were all within a square mile of each other. So, you know, they were... And the base was high security, so they were a very closely intertwined group. And so, yeah, I mean, players came back and forth, went over to dinner often with the officers. Like, uh, I know the, the Hamiltons, uh, Tom Hamilton would have cadets over to the house from Ohio, his home state, just to make them feel at home. Wow. 
That's that's definitely cool. Um, you know, I also well, you know, reading your book and and uh, I know the uh, forward was written by Claudia Williams. Now, did you actually meet her, or was it all phone conversations, or did? Uh, uh, yeah, you know, it was, yeah, she's she's lovely. I have met her, and but early on, I reached out uh, mainly to uh, the Hitter Museum. And I, all I wanted to do was just give them the pictures of her father because I, I knew that they weren't widely circulated. And I thought, you know, and it was kind of a shot in the dark. I reached out and I said, hey, I have some materials. And then the assistant to her family wrote me back. And her, very sadly, her mother had just passed. Oh, okay. And we ended up having long conversations. And she was mourning the loss of her mother, very sad. And, you know, her father, her brother had passed away. But she was... Um, she wanted to know more about her dad and his time at pre-flight. And the reason why there's not a lot of coverage on that is because when he got onto base, he was locked down. They put him in a dorm like everybody else. He didn't have a phone. He didn't have a laptop. He was put in there with government-issued equipment. And the Navy kept a close eye on him. They protected him. Right. Um, occasionally, he did these publicity pictures. The world saw a little of that. But, the, but you know, he would talk a little bit about pre-flight, but again, you know, this is why my book has been unusual, is I, I unearthed private information about what it was like for the cadets. So Claudia didn't really know what her dad's experience truly was in his early 20s in Chapel Hill. She was really moved by it. We had long conversations, so she, she did not know much at all about this. Um, and But again, she's lovely. She's very smart. Um, she is a nurse, and she went back to grad school at Duke to get her master's, and I believe she works with, with seniors, but she is sort of a chip off the old block of her dad about service. Right. She's very matter-of-fact, tells it like it is. Uh, you know, she said his work ethic was never half-assed. He was all about the job, all about the mission. He was the ultimate patriot as a Marine combat pilot. But I get that sensibility from her. I mean, she's serious. She's gracious. She just... She, she she wants to give, if right. you will. And I had a chance to meet her. I went up to the opening of the bed breakfast that she's opened. It was the house that she grew up in, um, and I believe in Vermont. And um, it's it's called the, the oh gosh, it's the Ted Williams. It's the B and B. And um, I met her there at the opening, and she just poured her heart and soul into opening the, the home place. And it's it's beautiful. It's it's up in the mountains. And uh, so, again, I had an opportunity to meet her in person there. So, but she's great, lovely person. And that's a beautiful state. I mean, Vermont. So, you know, adding the beauty of of the her home and the bed and breakfast with with Vermont itself is, uh, you know, you can't miss with that. Um, but did she know about the Cloudbuster Nine, the baseball team, or I mean, she knew about her dad's service. A bit. Not, not really. I mean, right. not, not so much. I mean, honestly, it's um, not really. I mean, most people didn't. Right. Yeah. And it's amazing from, you know, what I, I, you know, I mean, it's been four years since I read the book, but what I can remember, I mean, it's it's amazing that the skill and and the ability that, uh, you know, the players that they had on that team uh, truly. Right. Amazing. Right. I mean, there were about two dozen in and out. Yeah. Throughout pre-flight, that, that's a lot of players, and I'll, I'll rattle off some of the names. Yeah. And then the football coaches. I mean, there, there were even more football coaches. Yeah. 
Well, that's that. Well, that follows into the next question I was going to ask about. I mean, there was. I remember. Well, I remember from the book, and I remember uh, what are you know whatever article I read about the uh, the so many different luminaries that passed through the pre-flight. I mean, not it wasn't like you said it wasn't just baseball, but you know, football coaches. Ronald Reagan. Yeah. Bob Barker. Price is Right. Price is Right, yeah. The game show host, he was there. And I'm like, wait, what? He was not at Chapel Hill. I believe he was at Georgia. But here's, okay. So, Bear Bryant was uh, one of the first employees of the station, but he was a a football coach and a baseball coach at Chapel Hill of Georgia. But interestingly, I've been working with um, another author, um, and her name is... uh, Carrie O'Keefe, but Carrie Keith, but she, Carney Lastly was her grandfather, okay. and Carney Lastly was one of the. Uh, he worked for many, many years for Bear Bryant. He was his deputy coach at Alabama, but the three of them, so Bear Bryant, Carney Lastly, and Frank Mosley, um, they coached together for the first time. They had been former teammates at Alabama, but they united as coaches at pre-flight bases in Chapel Hill and Georgia. So, you know, they start out there, and then I come to find out that about two dozen uh, former players, you know, people who won the Rose Bowl, uh, coaches, athletic directors from Alabama, which is incidentally where my daughter goes to college, they all, you know, coached at at various pre-flight bases, so two dozen. And in 1945, when Bryant left, you know, I guess he went up to to Kentucky, he took 17 pre-flight players from Chapel Hill with him, along with most of his coaches. So right there is the taproot where it all really began, Um, you know, that sense of loyalty. And so when you go to the Bryant Museum down in Tuscaloosa, it's no surprise that you see a lot of these famous players and coaches with him. You see Gerald Ford wearing the, you know, the, the... the houndstooth hat, Gerald Ford was a coach at Navy pre-flight. And then, of course, you see a lot of work by Grant Rice, who was the wonderful sports writer. He was one of the few reporters they allowed on base at Navy pre-flight. So, again, these, these luminaries, you know, there's, it's no accident that you see these men together 20 and 30 years later because that, that's where they met, you know, long Whoa. ago in the Navy. So football coaches, others, um, Jim Crowley from Notre Dame, Bernie Beerman from Minnesota, uh, Bud Wilkinson from Oklahoma, Don Farrow, of course, invented the split T formation, Tex Oliver uh, with Baylor, uh, Jack Mayer with Auburn, Matty Bell, uh, Johnny Vaught, Ray Bear Wolf, he was a, also a coach at Georgia Pre-Flight, and then basketball, there's John Wooden and, of course, Frank McGuire. A legendary uh, basketball coach in Carolina. Um, And then for baseball, of course, you've got Charlie Gehringer, John Stain, Buddy Grimp, Buddy Hassett, first baseman for the Yankees, Um, Harry Kraft with the Reds, and his niece, who you might want to welcome on your show, Addie Beth Kraft-Denton, is publishing a book uh, through Texas Tech Press about her Uncle Harry. Oh, really? Okay. You know, groom Mickey Mantle. That's going to be coming out later this summer. Oh, um, nice. Other, you know, pre-flight baseball players are Jerry Coleman. He was stationed right. out at St. Mary's. Uh, Ray Scarborough, and then of course Dr. Bobby Brown, who was third baseman for the Yankees, who I interviewed extensively for my book. I spent a half day with him, and he described what it was like. And of course, he actually.
actually played against maybe pre-flight. I believe maybe when he was playing at Stanford. He was also um, the American League president, I think. Uh, Wasn't Bobby Brown? Yeah, Yeah. right, right. And a doctor. And a doctor. A a cardiologist. And he not only served in World War II, he served in Korea. And as his team was marching out on the field for the World Series, he was in Korea marching off a troop ship. And they were listening to to the World Series on shortwave radios. And he was just, you know, very cool, casual about it. Uh, But just a brilliant, brilliant man. He... He passed away, I believe, last year. Yeah. Uh, but some of the other coaches, uh, Larry Snyder, who's Jesse Owens' track coach, Willie Ternessa, U.S. Amateur Golf Champion, Don George, World Champion Wrestler, uh, Peter Fick, he was the, I believe he was an Olympic swim coach. But um, a note, and I've written a lot about swimming, but 60% of these guys, they couldn't swim. And you kind of <laughs> have to know how to do that. Yeah. You're going to be making carrier landings in the Pacific. So, right. You know, that was a big part of it, but... Uh, Cornelius Warmerdam, they called him the Flying Dutchman. He was a world champion pole vaulter who missed the Olympics during World War II. Um, and then there was a guy named Norm Hapsavell, and he invented the trampoline. Oh. And he was there. Yeah, yeah. They had to teach them tumbling and, you know, got this on film. But, you know, a lot of gymnasts were there to teach him tumbling. And I have heard circus performers actually came up to Iowa pre-flight just to teach these guys how to roll out of airplanes, of all things, you know, or, you know, with parachuting. So, again, this was using sports, using the best aspects of sports. They didn't call fouls and games. It was very rough. But it was all about sports and competition and using that for three months to condition these flyers. So some other famous people that were there, um, the Admiral Sidney McCain was um, – I guess you would call him an administrator. He was one of the the gentlemen early on who helped design uh, pre-flight and make sure that it was ramped up. And then Eddie Rickenbacker, the World War One age. Wow, Eddie Rickenbacker. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I'm looking at that scrapbook. Yeah. I have pictures of my grandfather with Eddie Rickenbacker. Wow. And they're in the baseball field. I mean, I mean, it's like, okay, boom. <laughs> That's something. Even I know who that is. Wow. So, and then Jack Dempsey. Uh, he would come through to motivate the players. But, of course, Gerald Ford, John Glenn was in the first uh, class at Iowa pre-flight. Um, and then, again, Bob Barker, as I just noticed, he's alive. He's 98. Uh, right. He was at Georgia pre-flight. And then actress Dennis Weaver and uh, Ed McMahon, who was the co-host uh, with Johnny Carson. Right. I think Johnny Carson... He was, he uh, started out, I believe, in the V5 program, but I think he was too young. Yeah. And for some reason, he transferred over maybe to the V12. But, you know, those are just some of the people. I mean, you know, Eleanor Roosevelt was there, Doris Duke was there, working in a lab. I said so there were men and women, I mean, famous, famous people, but they all served. They certainly did not make much money. But they all had a cause. And I think that that's something today that people really, they yearn for. You know, it's funny you mentioned Doris Duke, and I know you being from North Carolina and stuff, and the Duke family having such a a great presence. I don't know, did you know that Doris Duke spent a lot of time in New Jersey? We had had an estate. In fact, uh, I, since, since I no longer can, I used to run marathons, now I, you know, since I can't do that anymore, I, you know, I walk and hike and stuff, but I'll go to the Duke's estates and uh, and walk around. That's where Doris lived, and the father had 
Originally, uh, right. originally, but, but uh, oh, well, that's neat to know right. that she was, uh, she, she was, played a yeah. role. She, she studied tropical diseases, and I okay. think she worked in a lab, maybe over, the, over somewhere, maybe near the medical school. Yeah. Yeah, but that was her job during the war, yeah. studying tropical diseases. Wow. And, of course, she spent a lot of time in Hawaii, so right. traveled the world. Yeah. She was the richest woman in the country for a long time. I remember yeah. that was her. Uh, yeah. <laughs> I, I kind of don't think this is funny. Like, I know for a fact that she lived at the Carolina Inn. Yeah. She got really upset because some, some kid, like, told everyone what her room number was. Oh, no. She wasn't happy about that. And, and you know, back then, a phone number was three digits. You know, right. and she started getting, people would ring her up. And so she would get up early in the morning and kind of incognito come out the back of the Carolina Inn and go to her job. <laughs> you know, but she, she tried to avoid the people. But I, I do know for a fact she was very, very unhappy with those people who told her oh, what room she was in. Yeah, well, you know. Privacy, I mean, that's something that a lot of, and especially somebody as uh, successful and famous as her, uh, find precious, you know. No, I can understand that. Um, okay, I also, when I was researching, uh, the, the Cloudbuster team played in the, uh, the Ration League. Now, you want to yeah. tell me a little bit about that? I mean, I, I know a little bit about it, but... Um, right. Uh, yeah, what it was, was during the war, everything was rationed. And, and, and I'm right. going to back up for one minute because there's something interesting that created that. And there was a dynamic, kind of a tug of war going on um, that complicated this program. But again, gas was rationed, food was rationed. Right. Paper was rationed, newsprint was rationed, everything was rationed. Right. And so they created a schedule called the Ration League, and it was basically... From pre-flight, you could travel, you know, maybe 30 miles. There, there was a limit there, you know, because they, they wanted to save gas. And so they would play teams like Duke and Carolina, um, NC State, and I, I think, and then pre-flight, I believe there were four colleges in that league. And they would all battle it out every year to see who won. And interestingly, in 1943, my guys did not win it. I think maybe they pre-flight won it the next year, but... Uh, again, ra it was all about rationing, you know, and, and not being on the road. And, and Gene Tunney, though, a year or two before, Gene Tunney, and this is, again, pretty important, uh, was tapped to really oversee the physical training aspect for the Navy. And he was a world champion boxer, you know, admired, yeah. revered, but he believed in calisthenics. Uh, he was very... Um, strategic about the way that he trained he did not believe in people getting on buses and going all over tarnation to go play games i mean right. he felt like you stay on base you stay in your ring so to speak and tom hamilton who had come in after tunney to create and envision the navy pre-flight program said nope it's all about sports we've got to use football we've got to use basketball and and build Build on being a member of a team. I mean, it's all about that. It's about reflexes and skills. It's about competition. And it's about being able to literally kill a man with your bare hands because they were right. facing the most brutal and vicious enemies in the world. I mean, the right. Japanese flyers, of course. So they needed to, to really pull out the punches, so to speak. And Tony, though, you know, he did not believe in, in all this team competition. I mean, of course, he was a... A, a, a esteemed athlete, a famous boxer, but 
he believed that people should stay on campus. So the Ration League really adhered to that. You know, they, they traveled small distances and they played in baseball games against each other. And that's what that was really about. And, of course, Tom Hamilton, he ultimately won the fight. And uh, partially through the help of Eleanor Roosevelt, who cleared the schedule so that these guys could travel on the road, go further than the Ration League. You know, they could go up to Virginia. They could go to New York for that famous game for the competition. Right. You know, it's funny because I read there was a, uh, and I can't, uh, the name name escapes me, but I read a biography on Gene Tunney, and and they they did talk about, his time down there, and this would have been before I read your book, so I never put one and one together or something right. like that. But uh, yeah, and he took a lot of pride in uh, in the, yeah. his involvement there. I you know I can remember. Um, you did. Well, you just mentioned that famous game. You want to tell us a little bit about that yeah. famous game? That, that I found that very intriguing. That the, yeah. the Yankee um, and, yeah. Yankees they were. And and what it was, was, you know, okay, 1943, they had a good 10 major league players there, you know, a solid nine, if you will, in Chapel Hill. And, you know, that's the only time that would happen because they would scatter afterwards. They'd go to different uh, flight stations for more training. And the Navy, they, they wanted to grab that opportunity in the summer of 1943 when they had such star power with the Navy, with the Clawbusters. And they approached Babe Ruth in New York, and he desperately wanted to become a manager. And he was failing at that. He was had some health issues. You know, but he reeled in millions of dollars for war relief. I mean, the Red Cross. And so they approached him and said, hey, if you want to put together your own team of Indians and Yankees, you do it, and they're going to face the Cloudbusters in July at Yankee Stadium. And, and that did occur. Like, there was a lot of buildup for that game. You know, the pilots with Ted Williams and Johnny, all these famous players coming up to New York, breaking from training, uh, and they would only let them leave for, for, I believe it was 48 hours. So they were to get on a bus and go up to New York. But um, the problem with that, and again, this comes back to the resistance of all things that Navy pre-flight faced with letting players leave base, is they said, I'm sorry, Ted Williams is not going to go. You know, and it goes back to that theory of, you know, when people's sons are getting butchered, you know, out there, out, they, they were careful about, you know, treating players as celebrities. Now, he got really no star treatment, to be honest. He had to do what everybody else had to do. But, again, they, they said in the headlines, well, I'm sorry, you know, the Cloudbusters are coming, but they're not. he's not going to be with them. And so what that did was it kind of damaged the attendance. And people, they were so excited to see Williams and Babe Ruth on the field together. Oh, I mean, yeah. what a moment. You, you couldn't think of anything better. And then when the press comes out and says, well, you know, we're not going to let some of the stars come. They're going to have to stay on base. Uh, that put a damper on it. But again, that, day, that game did occur at the end of July. I'm not going to tell you the final score. But it was exciting. And, and, and I think the New York Times, there was um, one of the, the famous sports writers wrote that it was really this moment of goodwill, if you will. It I think Red Smith, Red Smith might have been the, the person you were talking about. Red Smith, I think, wrote. Um, no. No, it was, wasn't it Red was Smith? Uh, it was author of oh. Panther. I, I think it was 
think of it in a minute. Yeah, I know who you mean, too. Okay, I can see his picture, because the byline, I remember seeing, you know, his picture. But okay. Arthur Daly, maybe. Arthur Daly sounds right. Yeah, yeah, definitely. But he just wrote this beautiful piece, and where it all came together, and it was about spirit, is basically what he said. And so they did. The Cloudbusters went up there. I'm not going to tell you if Ted was on the bus or not, but it was just a moment, and it was it was that spirit is what my book is really about. They, they raised maybe $30,000, but kids were there. You know, factory workers were there. They made sure that the game was at a time in the day when everybody could come. And it was a double header. You know, it followed on the, the coattails of the Indians playing the Yankees. You know, so it was this fun-filled day. And, but again, it was about the spirit of the game. And then Babe Ruth, of course, coming out. But yeah, that was called the Yanklands. And that's really kind of how the Cloudbusters wrapped up their season before they shipped off to other bases. Yeah, that 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 was a great story, and that must have been something to to be in attendance, uh, you know, for that. I mean, because I mean, the Yankees and Indians back then. Well, you know, the Red Sox, of course, too. But the Yankees and uh, Indians. I mean, they were like always neck and neck for the American League. Right. You know, they exactly. were exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Well, did they advertise that that it was a team that yes. was Yankees and Indians? Okay, so at least oh, yeah, they did a lot of advertising. In fact, they probably did too much. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> because obviously it was like, uh, you know what? <laughs> Maybe we're not going to let everybody yeah. come up there. I mean, people—it's it, interesting because it, it's juxtaposed because people they needed this so badly. They right. needed to see their heroes out there on the diamond or on the football field. I mean, you know. Navy pre-flight football, they were produced incredible teams, top teams in the country. Um, they needed to see the basketball players, but again, it was that fine line of putting the celebrities out there. They had to keep a close eye on them. Right. You know, they didn't want them to get too much publicity. Right. Now, did I read that either you said or I read somewhere that it raised like thirty grand, but thirty grand was huge yeah. back then, right? I mean, thirty thousand dollars in nineteen forty-three, um, or was it? No, you know, it was not really. I mean, there were games where they raised millions. You know, oh, it, okay. it just there were, but it, it was a, it was a nice drop in the bucket. But again, I think what Arthur Daly was saying for the New York Times was it was a bigger. Uh, investment or bigger deposit in the spirit is what it was. Right, it was an right. infusion. That it, and, and literally when that game did happen, it made headlines all across the country. Right. Even to Hawaii, people knew about it. Well, I mean, it, it, it showcased, you know, the, the feeling of patriotism. I mean, you know, that's, uh, you know, I mean, there was a lot of that with... Uh, the Second World War, I mean, rallying people to, you know, be patriotic and, and for us, you know, our, our role in everything. Um, okay, um, now, did your father tell you a lot about, or how much did your father ever mention about his playing career? Like you said, you knew he, he did, but did he... Uh, um, you know, he, all he did, he, he loved baseball and he loved sports and he loved the quintessential athlete. Right. And he had, I, I'll give you an example of that. It's, it's kind of funny, but he, baseball players, Tim Duncan, he thought was the greatest athlete. Now he's a basketball player, obviously. Right. He was 
the San Antonio Spurs. Right. But where I'm going with this is my father idolized the old-fashioned sports hero. Now, he could be a guy today, but if they had those traits of the old leaguers, you know, the loyalty, the humility, my dad admired them. Right. And so, you know, we went on vacation once, gosh, this was like 25 years ago, to uh, the Virgin Islands, and my father... He was not sick at the time. He, he did get emphysema a few years afterwards, but okay. I think he was about 60. And we, we got there, and my father heard that Tim Duncan's father sold lottery tickets. Oh, really? And, oh, oh, yeah. And every day he would get up, and he'd wake me up, and he'd put his little blue windbreaker on, and he'd say, I want you to drive me to the grocery store where Tim Duncan's father sells lottery tickets. <laughs> All I want to do is shake his hand. I want to tell him that his son represents the old world of sports. Right. You know, Tim Duncan played basketball, you know, for Wake Forest. Um, he actually got the John, the John Wooden Award um, his senior year. And John Wooden, of course, as you know, was a Navy pre-flight coach. I mean, right. there was no relationship there. But Tim Duncan, in my father's mind, was the ultimate athlete. He was disciplined. He had a, a pleasant demeanor about him. Um, and he was loyal to, you know, the, the Spurs for years. And so, again, all my dad wanted to do was to go shake the man's hand. Every day we got up <laughs> and we went to that grocery store. And I, I imagine the guy left because he's like, hearing that there's this man. <laughs> it's like, there's the guy in the blue windbreaker who's insisting on meeting me, you know. And, but my point is all my father ever wanted to do was congratulate people. Yeah. And he was all about you know, just being on, on a team. And, and as far as his baseball career, you know, we knew he pitched for the Durham Bulls. Um, but something really, really interesting happened after my book came out. And this is what you're going to experience. Right. You get letters from people. And um, there was another baseball writer out of Durham. And he said, did you know that your dad, I believe it was his senior year in college, pitch, pitched for a black team? Really? Like, it's a... Yeah, okay, so, and it was in the newspaper. Here's what it was. Um, my dad moonlighted for a team out of Durham. And I, I can't remember the name of the team, but I've got the news clip. But he would earn a little pocket money, but it was mainly for practice to pitch probably against some phenomenal hitters. Mm-hmm. And so there's a picture, there's an article that mentions my dad, and it's about the African-American team, and then it said, and pitching is <laughs> Jim Rao, and then... Another guy, like maybe a third baseman, and maybe that guy was another player from Carolina. I think he was from, like, Rocky Mount or something, or Wilson. But he also went with my dad. So my point is he was all about the game. He didn't care who, what, when, where. He just wanted the the best practice he could get. So, you know, again, that that was that that was great. I I love that because it just showed that how open-minded he was. You know, again, this is the the 50s. But, you know, as far as his, he talked a lot about, you know, his playing days. He did not talk much about getting injured. Like, I knew it happened. And honestly, that was really confirmed when I was writing the book. And I found an article in Sporting News. And it just talked about when he was retiring in 1961. And then I found letters from my grandparents and my grandfather was sort of a, a businessman and he and as a parent I get this he wanted my dad to move on he was hurt he's like you need to go to business school you, you've got to, you got to you know got it up be a man and, and 
go on. And, and my dad did that. You know, he yeah. ended up going into sales. But when I opened up the scrapbook, I saw his picture, like, on the team, you know, the softball teams for textile teams. And, and the, the, the light in his eyes was just kind of gone. Yeah. i, I got to tell you. I yeah. mean, it was like you could see the light. And I talked to Mike Fox about that, who's the baseball coach, or was at Carolina. He's a fantastic guy. You know, he's a historian. He's the one that saved all those pictures of the ball players at Carolina that are now on the walls there. But he was like, Mike's like, look at his eye. It's alive. Right. And you, you know what I'm talking about. Yeah. He was a, in the late 50s. He was there. And then, you know, you see him in the mid-60s, and he's like getting interviewed by the paper about who you think is going to win the World Series and how painful that would be to go, well, you know, I think it's going to be the Cardinals this year, and, and I played with so-and-so and so-and-so, and he's the pitcher, and that must have been just a real gut buster. Yeah. Yep. about that, about everybody else who made it. But, yeah. but you know, he had a good life, and he yeah. loved his friends, and, you know, but again, that's kind of, that's what I heard, uh, just about his, his playing days, you know, the past with the you know, Mickey Mantle and stuff like that. And then, yeah, that was kind of it. You know, what you were just describing, you, you remember, uh, oh, Field of Dreams, the movie, right? Yeah. Okay. Oh, yeah. Remember the. Uh, Bill, Bill Wilson, the guy who I believe was the director, right? Okay. Remember. He's a great guy. Remember when uh, Moonlight Graham, when uh, Burt Lancaster was talking about, he was talking about how getting so close, because, you know, Moonlight Graham. Only got to bat once, but he hit a, a sacrifice fly, so he didn't get yeah. like a. But but that feeling that you know you you get so close to it, and it it, it just kind of reminds me, and and maybe uh, it had, your your father's feeling might have been similar to yeah. that, you know, that whole moment like that. You know, it was, but he didn't make it. I mean, he got yeah. close. He was there at spring training, but men like Graham made it, and maybe it was just yeah. one game, but. Interestingly, um, Willie Steele is the biographer for um, Kinsella, who wrote, obviously, Field of Dreams. Oh, really? And I've seen pictures of Moonlight Graham. Yeah, and, and we did a talk together at the library in Hickory, and Willie talked a lot about that, you know, Moonlight Graham. And what I learned was he really, baseball was kind of second in his mind. He wanted to be a doctor. Yeah, and he yeah. put himself through school. He played baseball games. He made some money, and then... He wanted to go to medical school, which right. is obviously what he did. Right. But he he did get that moment. I mean, right. it, it's that he made it. Even if you played one game. Right. You made it. Yeah. And my dad just never quite got there. He got close. Yeah. But it was, I think it was honestly gut-wrenching to see the guys that he played with making it. Yeah. I mean, and hearing about it on the radio and. You know, when we, we always kind of knew that's really what he wanted. I agree. Your, I think your assessment is very accurate. Um, I read somewhere where you said there's probably too much in the book, but I had trouble parting with the content. If it was a cake, yeah. there would have been a hundred layers in it. Now, what did you mean when you said that? Or well, you expound I, upon I it? Tended, yeah, no, no. I had some people, some beta readers, who right. were pretty scathing they're like oh my god you you can't talk about the Wright brothers i mean they're not yeah. part of this right and what i learned is when you write a book and is you've got to get a real narrow focus 
And right. people have always got to be doing something, going somewhere, doing something, taking action. And there was plenty of that. But what I had to do was narrow it down to really three months of when the players were there. I mean, right. that was really what that book was about. And so, but had they let me off my leash. Right. Oh, my gosh. I would have been talking about, who knows what, women, teams, you know, the factories, uh, the beach in North Carolina, U-boats, the, the Wright brother. I mean, all kinds of stuff, you know, airplanes. And, 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 and I would have gone all the way into the Korean War right. if they had allowed me to do it. And they're like, nope, sorry, got to go back to 1943. That's what this is about. So, again, I think the, the discipline of that, and when I write other books, and I will write other books, yeah. uh, is, is what I learned is you've got to really hone in and not get too carried away and trying to cover everything. And, two, you know, you might share something with someone and they might like something when the next person's going to hate it. And you have to kind of take a step back and go, okay, what, what do I want to say? And that's what I did with this. And I actually started another book and got halfway through it when COVID hit. And um, I was interviewing the last surviving major leaguers who served in World War II. And I got through about two dozen of them. I got, you know, Tommy Lasorda. I got uh, Chuck Stevens. Uh, I mean, you know, and Eddie Robinson, of course. Right. And But then COVID hit. And I also learned that when you write a story of this nature, like the teammates, you need to be in, you need to have some personal interaction with these people right. to understand who they are. Zoom calls don't cut it. Right. You can't hear anyone on a telephone. And, and, and in my opinion, I, I got through half of it. So what I did in the meantime was I read stories about them just right. to salvage it. Yeah. But, you know, that book, that was unfortunate with the, the pandemic. But, you know, again, you, you write a book, you zero in on what you want to say. You've got to, you've got to be wed to that. You got to, to use a baseball analogy, you got to keep your eye on the ball, right? Kind of. Absolutely. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. But um, you mentioned somebody that I know that you had a very close, because I remember when you were talking, you know, when you were working on that, that book, I remember either reading or, you know, we exchanged emails, but your relationship with Eddie Robinson, I know that you guys oh. were really close, right? Yeah. Well, I mean, as close as, as anyone could, like when right. I met him, he was probably 96, 97, but the thing about Eddie was he was there. Right. He, and he was the only, other than the other pitcher that I found, he played for the Norfolk team. Oh, right. And he was very close to Dr. Bobby Brown. They lived in Fort Worth. And so I got a chance to talk to him. And when I gave a talk up at Ranger Stadium, he was there and he got up and he was pointing to things on the screen. And he's like, no, I was there. That's who that was. This is what the games were like. And so that truly was history being made at that moment. Yeah. And the people there were just aghast by it because he, he was the last surviving player to face the Cloudbusters. He knew all of them. And the thing about Eddie is he's just, he grew up, you know, poor in Paris, Texas, uh, picking cotton as a child. Uh, collecting Coke bottles. Uh, you know, he said they got a ball that was tattered and they taped it up. I mean, you know, his first uniform was, I think, maybe a satin uniform with Coca-Cola bottlers. But he was the epitome of the old school player. Right. And so he was in the war. I think he served like three and a half years in the Navy. But, you know, he started out up in Norfolk. And that was the arch rival 
to the Cloudbusters. And he told me about what it was like riding on the buses with a bologna sandwich. And, hmm. you know, but that was his reality. And he actually got hurt. I think during the war, he did something with his leg. But, you know, he was a real survivor. And But he brought me in close with the guys on the bus, if you will, and with the guys on the train. He put me back there. And he said, oh, yeah, you know, this is what it was like. And so that's how I got to know him. And, you know, I thought he would at least live to be 105. And very sadly, he passed away at 100. Last year, I was really surprised, frankly. But he was a live wire. And, you know, I, I talked to him when COVID broke out. And I said, oh, everyone is so panicked. And he's like, ah, we're going to get through this. Yep. I mean, we've been through the World War II. And that's the spirit that I loved about him was he had had hardships through his life. The Depression, you know, World War II. Um, you know, he worked in baseball for decades. And he had seen it all. And... You know, he just, his spirit was strong, and he just had that sense of, of, you know, that we can prevail through anything. And even Vince Scully, I had a chance to interview him uh, about a year ago, and he said the same thing. He's like, you know, we've been through wars, and we can get through this. But, but you know, Eddie Robinson was handsome and rugged, all good things. And I, I think he just absolutely represented the finest aspects of the game. Well, just think, you you'd mentioned the Depression. Just think how dire a situation that must have been. That, you know, yeah. re reading the history of it, it's like, and trying to place, you know, place myself where other people were at during that time. I mean, it had a scene, I guess the word yeah. dire or futile, I mean, is it going to end? It didn't, you know, and it did. Well, you know, Delbert Reed is um, one of the biographers for Bear Bryant. And Delbert lives down in Tuscaloosa. And I've had long conversations with him, very emotional, about, I mean, he grew up during the Depression, and he said his mother always ate last. I mean, they barely had enough food to put on right. the table. But what he said to me, and, and this stays with me, right. is that those guys, they knew what it was like to go hungry. They knew what it was like to be cold. They knew their parents were immigrants. They wanted to be Americans, you know, they wanted to serve in the war, but they had gone without. I mean, Mayor Bryant grew up really, really, really dirt poor in, in uh, I think, Murrah Bottom, Arkansas. You know, and so he, what Delbert was trying to say was that sense of deprivation and yearning united these guys to fight for their country. And he's like, you know, they knew what it was like to go without. And, and he felt like that was the grand uniter of these teams i mean coming from all walks of life even the famous ball players you know they they had just come from from humble means you know not all of them i mean but you know for the most part they did and that that cleaved them together if you will as a team and as uh servicemen, you know, throughout the war and throughout their lives. It stayed with them throughout their life. And, and you see it. You look at Gerald Ford with, with Bear Bryant uh, when they're in their 40s and their 50s. And it, it's right there. You just have to take a step back and look at it. And you see it. Right. Okay. I know you had mentioned to me um, that uh, you had asked me if, uh, when, you know, when I sent the questions and, and we kind of uh, alluded to it in the beginning of our interview here that uh, the many emails and letters you've received from uh, 
readers, uh, you know, that mourn the old school ball players. I mean, do you want to say anything more about? It? I know you did say you did talk about it, but is there anything um, you yeah. want to add to I that mean, or? Like, Wally Man, and then um, yeah. And interestingly, I got um, I, there's an article coming out maybe today in the Marine Corps Times that a, a family reached out to me. Uh, the grandson of Colonel Don uh, Morisak, and um, he had actually played on that Cloudbuster team in 1943, and he of course became a Marine combat pilot and. The Marine Corps, that was just the centerpiece of his life. But he had, years ago, the daughter had said, hey, Dad, why don't you write your memoir? And he never said he did or he didn't. And then he passed away, I believe, in 2013. And then as the family was cleaning the house out, they found his memoirs. Oh, and so about a month ago, the grandson wrote me and he said, hey, we found this. And guess what? He's got a chapter on Navy pre-flight. Oh, wow. So I was like, wow, you know, I would love to read that and to see what he said. And sure enough, um, it was one of those those letters which goes back to the past. But he said, you know, they played pushball one day for Life Magazine. They came and one guy broke his leg and two guys broke their arms. That's how dangerous it was. Yeah. And it was in the guy's diary. Um, so, but again, it, it goes back, harkens back to that old school. And, you know, and then after they played the pushball game, I'm sure the baseball team got on a bus and went off to Norfolk or went up to Annapolis to play the game. I mean, that's, that was their reality. That was their world. Um, but, yeah, so I've, I've gotten things like that. Um, you know, I love anybody who ever wants to write me. Please do if you have a memory. Yeah. I've heard from the grandchildren of Buddy Grimp, uh, Buddy Hassett. Obviously, you know, David Pesky, Claudia Williams. I mean, they treasure this, this time. They're very proud of what their dads and their grandfathers and their great-grandfathers did during the war. So, you know, anytime you read a book, I encourage you to reach out to a writer. And, and too, if they mess something up, too, we need to know that as well. Um, but, you know, again, for the most part, it's all good. And, you know, I just think there's a sentimentality there that, it, it, it was just a real joy to write it, and I'll continue to do it through stories with survivors. Um, you know, I think that's just kind of my job for, from here on out. Again, the letters just from kids just make it all the more special. Yeah. Well, I mean, those those people from from that time. I mean, they are who was it that said the greatest generation? Isn't that the uh, right? Uh, what was it, Tom yeah. Brokaw or somebody? I I forget who said it, but. Tom yeah. Brokaw. Tom Brokaw, yeah. Great book. Yeah, That's isn't it? That I read. Yeah. yeah, absolutely. Is there going to be a sequel to this book? I know that you said you have all um, this information. I mean, what do you think? I, I don't know. I mean, I think there's not really a sequel to the quote, Cloud Busters. I mean, I think that there's a book out about the football team in general, about the V5. I think there could be something there specifically right. about maybe pre-flight football, maybe in Iowa. Yeah. Um, I think that there's a great book out, um, oh gosh, it's about basketball, um, I believe in the summer of 42. And it's, uh, but as far as the sequel, um, I don't know. I mean, I think my charge at this point is just writing about the last survivors, trying right. to get that information from them before it's gone. Um, and, oh, and I'm working on other pieces about women, 
female oh. navigator, for example. Yeah, oh, I nice. mean, so I'm writing for history, history A and E. I do stories for them now. Okay. And um, I just wrote something about a female navigator named Mary Tornish, and she was the daughter of immigrant, lived in San Francisco, and she truly was like she worked with Weems of Weems Navigation. I mean, she was the female behind the scenes who trained the World War II pilots. She also mapped the surface of the moon. I mean, she was a navigator. And so when, you know, the Apollo space mission, you know, they get up there, they've got to figure out how to get home. And so people like Mary mapped the surface of the moon. So they had a perspective of where they were leaving instead of where they were coming from. So she's a hidden figure. And, and, you know, I've written something about her. Can that be developed into a book? I don't know. But Mm -hmm. I'm just fascinated with her. She worked in a candy factory in the 1920s to put herself through Berkeley. Wow. I mean, painting chocolate Easter eggs. (laughs) Yeah, she's brilliant. But, I I mean, you just don't hear about stuff like that anymore. So that's kind of my mission at this point. So I guess this is to be determined. To be, uh, TBD. Okay. TBD. Yeah. Well, and... It is always a pleasure to talk with you, and this is my my compliment to you. Is anytime I ever talk to you, I feel like I learn something. I definitely learned a lot. <laughs> no, I mean, there's a lot of stuff that you meant. You know, like I, you know, on the onset, I was saying, oh yeah, well, you know, I'm no, I'm going to know the answers to a lot of these questions. Well, <laughs> there's a lot of them I didn't know the answers to. So, right. Well, so, I appreciate this so much. And, yeah. You know, they're to be determined, and I learned from you as well. I mean, okay. I think we all learn from each other. Yes, we do. All right, Ann. Will you enjoy your day? And uh, you're in Austin, right? Austin is where. Yes, I'm in Austin. Well, uh-huh. And you got great weather, I imagine. Yeah, I do. It's and you're making day. and you're making me jealous out in Jersey. I am. <laughs> um, well, thank you so much. It was a real pleasure. All right, Ann. Have a great day. Okay. You too. Uh, okay. Soon. All right. Bye. The phrase, the apple doesn't fall far from the tree, is meant to indicate how children's qualities and talents are similar to their parents. So to honor my dad and his influence on me concerning baseball, I named this podcast, The Baseball Doesn't Fall Far From The Tree, in his honor. If you have any questions about today's program, you can contact us via email at rvhurte at gmail.com and if you're interested in our new book Intelligent Influence in Baseball you can also send us an email and we will let you know how you can order it in the immortal words of the famous baseball journalist Red Smith baseball is a dull game only for those with dull minds <laughs>